Music. Stage first shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakeland Trail, 478 Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Zebalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is it. Once again, it's time to go Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Zebalero, and I got to say, man, happy Friday to everybody. St. Patrick's Day just passed. We'll call this the birthday edition of the Inside EMS uh, podcast because yesterday uh, I turned 51 years old. And here's the guy, supposed to be my partner, didn't even wish me happy birthday, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? Do I need to sing happy birthday to you in my Marilyn Monroe voice? Oh, yeah. Can you do that? That might be something. <laughs> yeah. Just I usually do a lap dance like this. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and pass on that. And let's go ahead and just wish me. I hope you had a good one. And let's move on from there. Uh, all right, man. Well, you, you're missing out on, on a good Marilyn Monroe impression. Well, but, uh, yeah, happy birthday, brother. No, nah, thank you very much. But anyway... <laughs> So, you know, great week. Uh, you know, I think uh, last week we had some really great feedback as we talked about pediatric assessment. Coming up next week, or we're looking in the next couple weeks, we're going to talk about uh, ultrasound in the field. And we're preparing all the, uh, you know, all the information that we want to share with you guys. But I think one of the things that we want to ask, if you're using ultrasound in the field today... Go ahead and shoot us an email. Let us know how it's working for you. Because as we discuss it, it'd be really be good, Kelly, if we had the opportunity to kind of chat with some folks in EMS who are using it and kind of get their, you know, kind of throw their opinions into the in discussion as well. And uh, we'd really appreciate some of that feedback. Yeah. So y'all, y'all hit us up with your your questions and comments uh, before we do the show, and hopefully we can incorporate them into the show. So email us at the show at ems1.com. Man, you are a marketeer, boy. Let me tell you why. But talking about emails, <laughs> Kelly, we did get a couple that we probably should uh, just chat about really quick. Okay. And uh, first one comes to us from Crystal. And a really great email here. And her question to us is, are there any online courses you would suggest to start working towards becoming an eventual paramedic? Background, I am currently an over-the-road driver, so hence the online part. I have taken TCCC and so on and so forth. She has CPR. She's a 37-year-old female. And go ahead and blow that toot that horn for us, Crystal. But uh, there are some great <laughs> online courses. Kelly, do you have a couple of uh, suggestions for Crystal? Well, as far as, as preparatory courses for, for paramedic, I don't really have anything that I can point her to. I'm sure there are some out there. There, there are oodles of, uh, of uh, free online resources out there. One of the things I'd point her to is... Uh, Anything she can get on anatomy and physiology, of course. Uh, Khan Academy uh, has a bunch of uh, free uh, online e-learning courses uh, in that regard. Uh, some of them, I've seen some of them on A and P, and some of them on commenting, uh, some of them on uh, interpreting common lab values and that sort of thing. Um, but there are a number of them out there. Not only can Crystal. Uh, find some online uh, courses to prepare her for paramedic class. But there are a couple of of good quality online paramedic courses out there. Uh, things that you know, if she can pull over and participate in the chat rooms and that sort of thing, she can. Uh, she could probably be uh, on the road trucker and take her her paramedic class at the same time. You know, I think one of the things though to think about though, Crystal, is that nobody who has gone through paramedic school will probably share with you uh, anything but how difficult it was to work full-time mm -hmm. and to go to school full-time. They cram an awful lot of information 
in a uh, eight, nine, twelve month, eighteen month course. And you know, for you being uh, an over the road driver, the the challenge may be is how are you going to get that studying in? You are going to need to be able to do your clinicals. You are going to need need to be able to. Uh, work with your uh, cohort, your classmates to try to help guide that. But whatever we can do to help, and certainly uh, if questions come your way that you need to share, uh, go ahead and email us at the show at ems1.com as you've done. And we'll certainly, we want to be able to help and we want to be able to guide you as best we can. And um, so whatever we can do to help, we're there, right, yep, Kelly? Yep, and, and, on that, uh, and on that note, I'll, uh, I'll work in a plug to, to my old podcast that I did with Ron Davis, uh, Confessions of an EMS newbie. Archives are still up on the the newbie website, and uh, you can still get the the uh, episodes on iTunes. But that was Ron's perspective of uh, EMT training, all the way from from newbie all the way through paramedic, uh, and we covered each week in class. So a lot of people find that those conversations uh, um, enlightening and uh, and helpful uh, in preparing for class and, and at least knowing what to expect. So uh, I encourage you to check those out as well. Awesome. And did we, we did get another, we did get a, a couple other emails. And, uh, you know, Kelly, I think one of the things that you and I were chatting about before we started to record was uh, very, very soon here, we're going to have our second uh, anniversary as being partners on the Inside EMS podcast. And I think that it's, yeah. uh, you know, it's, and I think you and I, we've done this every week. I think we've missed two uh, scheduled podcasts uh, mm-hmm. in in that two year time frame. So we've been pretty consistent. And and one of the things that uh, you know when I think about the audience is sometimes I just think it's you and I here talking, and, and we're mm-hmm. just kind of filling some airtime. But um, I think one of the things that I'm most proud of is is we have an international following. And our next email comes from Nikki Gardner, and Nikki lives in England. So Nikki sends us an email, and she's a volunteer medical service here in the UK. Uh, it's called St. John's Ambulance, and she joined it 18 months ago. And and now awesome. she's starting. Yeah, now she's starting to make her, uh, you know, move into getting certified and uh, going through her 10 week EMT one course. And she listens to the show, and you know, she's just kind of, you know, she's just kind of telling us that, you know, she'll keep listening, and she appreciates the. Uh, Probably the information that I give her. I don't know if she appreciates so much what you give her. <laughs> but what's interesting here is that Nikki is 48 years old, and she's making a career change into EMS, and I think that that is uh, pretty awesome. You know, I, I'm i a, a big fan of non-traditional students, uh, and particularly older students, going into EMS. Um, if you're in reasonably good physical shape, you can you – can, uh, have a career in EMS uh, as long as anyone else, as far as I'm concerned. And the the one thing I like as an educator about uh, the older students is they they have some life experience and they have a pretty finely developed BS filter. They can often be more challenging to the instructor than the younger students who will, who will often take what I say at face value. Uh, and the older students, you know, kind of will will challenge you on some of those things and, and keeps you on your toes. But it also makes for a uh, a better, more well rounded uh, EMT. And uh, I applaud her for doing that. That's great. Now, one of the things that we did talk to Nikki about was I'd really like to get her on the show and mm-hmm. have her visit with us regularly as she's going through this process to talk about her experiences, not only with. Uh, you know, being across the pond and, and, you know, the UK's perspective. But in this new opportunity of uh, now becoming certified as an EMT-1 
and being uh, as a new career as she's uh, uh, you know as she's uh, moving along. And I think it'd be interesting on a regular basis just to hear what's going on, to get some perspective, and then from there there may be questions that come from her uh, interactions with us that we may be able to help other people with. Yeah, we'll we'll need to get Nikki on and make that a regular thing. We'll call it the 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 tea and crumpet segment. Oh, how about that? There I'm, you go. The I'm looking forward to hearing from her. That's right. That's right. So, um, one more, Kelly, before we move into the news, and uh, yeah. we've got a uh, an email that came from a gentleman named Alan, and he's considering moving to an area as an employee that serves a small community with one person on duty for 24 hours with the likelihood of getting assistance before the patient is packaged for transport about 20 minutes is very slim. I'm searching for some educational material on the best practices to safely do this and the equipment that would help facilitate this. If you have any advice or suggestions, please let me know. And uh, when I first read this email, I was very, very interested to uh, know the reason why there's only one person on for 24 hours, especially if there is going to be some need... uh, you know, for, for moving a patient quickly. And, uh, you know, I think that this offers a challenge more than it offers an opportunity. And I'm interested to know what you think, Kelly. Well, you know, in, in super rural areas and very low volume EMS systems, I, I don't think 24 hour shifts uh, is all that unusual. In fact, it's probably more the norm. Uh, and shorter shifts would be the exception to the rule. Um, but only one uh, speaks of, of very. Uh, very minimal staffing. They probably don't have enough people to uh, to staff an, an ambulance 24-7, 365. Um, but, man, there are a lot of... Uh, I love rural EMS. I, I've, I've enjoyed it all my career. I spent 10 years in urban EMS and the rest of my uh, career doing suburban and, and rural with response times upwards of 30 minutes and transports of, of an hour to an hour and a half. So um, you will never get deeper into a treatment protocol or an algorithm as you would be uh, in a rural setting. Um, and that's where I think the, the benefit of advanced life support really shines. But having said that, um, I, I think that uh, you can provide good medical care even without a great deal of, uh, uh, of backup and and. You know, it's a it's certainly a challenge to to manage a critical patient for the first. I don't know how long you said. What was it? Twenty minutes until he, until additional help arrives. Yeah. Uh, there's there's certainly a challenge to that, but it is a challenge that can be sur- uh, surmounted. You can you can uh, meet that challenge and and continue to provide good medical care. But mainly, you just have to adopt a different mindset. Um, Whereas, you know, when I, when I worked in, in urban EMS, uh, when you've got a, a hospital, uh, major hospitals within, you know, all compass points, uh, five minutes either direction, um, y- providing advanced life support and, and doing uh, uh, some of the, the treatments I would do in a rural setting um, are not really necessary. So the, the diesel bolus kind of moves up the priority list uh, because you realize you have uh, resources and, and assistance um, fairly close by. Um, in a rural setting, not so much. So you spend a little more time stabilizing and packaging your patient, um, not just because you don't have help uh, uh, 
available, but because of necessity, um, it's not going to be often that somebody will be able to hop into the back of the rig with you uh, and give you an extra set of hands. Uh, you're probably going to be taking care of a patient for an hour or, or however long your transport times are all by your lonesome, which means that you need to get them as squared away, well-packaged, well-assessed, well-stabilized as you can, uh, and the, the additional few minutes spent on scene doing that before you transport is time well spent, in my opinion. So um, I think it's, it's going to be a challenging career for him, but um, uh, I think it'll be a rewarding one nonetheless. You know, one of the things that I think about from a, you know, a logistical standpoint is I do worry about safety issues. I do worry about uh, managing, um, you know, managing some of those uh, challenging scenes by yourself. Uh, I don't really know if this is a, a best practice when it comes to sending one responder to the scene and and then waiting for the the cavalry to. It's definitely not a best practice, but but it may very well be the only practice that's available to them. No, I get that, and the point that I yeah. was trying to get to, Alan, was that I would really spend some time in getting some information in your background regarding scene safety. Because when you walk into that house, at least I know that when Kelly and I walk into someone's house, I've got Kelly there uh, who's, who's looking after me. I'm certainly looking after him. When you go into somebody's home, you're by yourself. And, and, and I would, I would kind of have a little bit of challenge. I mean, look, look at what happened in, in North Little Rock, Arkansas, Kelly, when the volunteer firefighter mm-hmm. uh, made the scene prior to the... Um, you know, prior to the department showing up, uh, patient, patient was post and he got shot and killed, really. Uh, you're absolutely right. And one of the things that I think we need to think about from that aspect is um, your own safety. So, Alan, my recommendations to you is to uh, learn all you can about uh, good scene safety and uh, leave that equipment behind if you have to, get out, and uh, make sure you get home to your family at the end of your shift. And there is, I'll add one, one other thing to this, that there is one, one of the beauties of rural small town EMS is not only do you probably tend to know the people you're working on, but the bonds and, and the relationships you develop with your, your fellow responders, uh, seems to me always a little bit stronger uh, than we have in the city. We, uh, quite often we socialize together. We, we did things in our off duty time. Um, and, uh, people in small towns, it's a it's a unique experience, man, and they uh, they are they're tight knit, uh, including the EMS community. So uh, you'll probably make a, a lot of good friends there, and uh, those good friends know uh, the challenges that you're going to be facing, um, and they'll they'll have your backs more often than not. So good luck with your uh, with your job. I agree with you, man. But Kelly, let's go ahead and jump into some news. You got the first story. What are you giving us? Well, it's a day that ends in Y, so let's talk about something bad that happened at DC Fire EMS, shall we? Um, today's uh, today's episode uh, from March 14th, uh, a gunshot victim suffered uh, or waited 30 minutes for an ambulance to arrive at DC Fire EMS on March 14th. Um, uh, police officers and firefighters on scene in minutes, uh, but they could not get a uh, transport unit there within 30 minutes. Gosh, um man what can i say uh that we haven't said a million times before this is uh this is an endemic problem with this agency and apparently from from recent statements by the mayor and city council members and and whatnot uh trying to refute dr saucy's allegations when she resigned uh they still can't get 
the point. Um, they they need to be swacked over the head with the clue bat, but uh, so far no one has been able to wield one large enough to uh, to cause the uh, the epiphany they need. But uh, uh, man, it's coming. It it needs to be it needs to happen as close to ten years ago as possible. But uh, still, you know, here it is, 2016, and they're still pretty much the same EMS system they were 10, 15 years ago. Hang on. And that's not a good thing. Wait, wait, (laughs) wait one minute. What's the word? Swack? Yeah, swack them on the head with with a clue back. Is that is that a a Kelly Grayson colloquialism, or is that, where's that, where's swack coming from? Yeah, that's, yeah. Okay, all right. That's a, that's a. But, (laughs) so, um, but here, Kelly, here's my question here. One of the things that we talked about in light of Dr. Saucy's resignation was now that DC Fire and EMS was going to have some collaboration with a private EMS provider on the times where they weren't able either to get to the scene or to get to areas where uh, for less serious calls. What's going on with this? I mean, how is this not working? So automatically now from almost the very beginning... They're waiting 30 minutes on scene of a gunshot victim who needs to get to a trauma center as quickly as practical and, and maybe needs some cert, whatever they're going to need. But I guess that's not working either then. Why did they wait so long if, if not only DC Fire and EMS is going to be in charge of responding and transport? And now they're paying whatever, how many million dollars a year? What was it, $12 million a year to, to get a private mm-hmm. ambulance there? And they couldn't even get that. I think it really is going to come down to... There's no more fun in talking about the challenges of DC Fire and EMS. It's the they're they're the they're the low the low hanging fruit for examples of how to do it wrong. Uh, it's too easy to pick out things that that DC Fire EMS does poorly, does absolutely counterintuitively, uh, and steadfastly clinging on to a, a failed model. Uh, in every sense of the word, and and not only that, they're paying AMR twelve million dollars to to supplant their uh, fleet and and to respond uh, as needed, uh, and yet they're they're still clinging to antiquated ideas and old paradigms in in requiring uh, AMR's response. They want them to go lights and siren to every single call. Oh, wait a th- you know how nineteen eighties of you DC Fire EMS. That's that's great. Um, you had a chance to uh, to maybe think outside the box, but uh, apparently uh, the box walls there in D.C. Are, are made out of concrete. So let's go ahead and bring a little lighter story, Kelly, and uh, something that probably uh, you're going to have something to say about. you got something to say about everything, but we're going to go to Spokane, Washington, and uh, we're talking about on March 16th, the Code Green campaign is two years old. And i got to tell you, over the past couple of years, we have seen the growth of the Code Green campaign and the great work that they're trying to do of breaking the silence and helping EMS, uh, EMS providers who are killing themselves, who are dealing with the stress, who are dealing with the, the challenges of, of uh, you know, dealing with their whatever it is. And we've got to give kudos. We've got to go ahead and send a pat on the back mm-hmm. that this started off. As you know, and maybe you have a little bit more background, Kelly, being on their board of directors. Th- this was just a couple people now, and now they're developing mm-hmm. into a, a, a major organization that is now starting to bring awareness to this big issue in EMS. Yeah, this code green is something I'm I'm 
uh, immensely proud to be involved with. This is, you know, I can't, I cannot take credit for it. All I, all I bring to the table for Code Green is a, a forum and a, a readership um, and advice here and there. But uh, Ann Farina and Fiona Campbell and the rest of the board of directors of, of Code Green have done an excellent job uh, in in trying to destigmatize mental illness among public safety providers and, and doing what our core mission is, and that's to, to crowdsource peer support for EMS. We're trying to advocate. Uh, we're trying to lobby to, to get better mental health benefits and, and kind of erase some of the, uh, the stigma that comes with a, uh, with a depression or PTSD diagnosis um, and, and get the word out there. Uh, and empower people to to not only speak up about their own problems and, and seek help, but to uh, to lobby and 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 uh, push their employers and their legislatures to to shore up the the defenses. Man, our, our mental health system is is in tatters in the United States, uh, and EMS and public safety providers are, are every bit uh, as much at risk as the general population. Uh, and, and even more so because, you know, sometimes, you know, admitting you have a problem, there's a, there's a stigma by your, uh, your fellow workers and your employers and everything else that, so, that kind of uh, pushes us to, uh, to hide the fact that we're hurting. Um, and I'm glad to be uh, associated with Code Green. It, it's, boy, it's been a short two years. I, I can hardly believe it's come this, fa- uh, come this far this fast. So uh, congratulations to uh, everyone involved and uh hopefully we're we're gonna have bigger and better things in the future i agree with you 100 percent. what do you got for us next man there's uh this is a file this under emt's behaving badly this is uh in uh quebec a man from winslow maine a member of the maine sports hall of fame apparently a college football athlete died in a snowmobile crash in quebec uh and the brother's saying that paramedics refused to render care because they didn't want to go to the accident in a wooded area about a mile from the nearest road, so apparently they wouldn't uh, didn't didn't want to hike through the snow in the uh, the woods to get to the victim. And uh, Glenn Dumont, uh, 69 years old, died on March the second after his snowmobile collided with another one about 60 miles north of Quebec City. Um, and his brother uh, Louis Pelletier said that uh, he was unconscious but still breathing after the accident. Uh, and that the ambulance responded, but the paramedics would stopped on the road and would not go out to the victim. Apparently, the coroner is investigating Dumont's death, and uh, the Quebec Health Minister uh, is involved in, in uh, looking into the allegations. But if this is true, uh, and and we know, you know, we have to take every news report and every every uh, witness or or a family member's. Uh, allegations with a grain of salt because sometimes their their view is a little distorted but um if this is true this sounds like a pretty serious dereliction of duty uh in my mind um you know no nobody ever said the job wasn't was going to be easy and nobody ever said that uh, our patients are going to be brought to us on the road uh we have to go where the patients are um and uh, a hike through the woods. I've I've done plenty of them in rural EMS. I, I'm sure you've uh, you've uh, gone the extra mile and 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 uh, hoofed it to wherever the patient was yourself. Uh, I just can't fathom why these guys wouldn't. Yeah, and this is one of those. You know, there are three sides to every story. Of course, mm-hmm. you know, there's my side, there's your side, in the middle somewhere, there's the truth. And uh, you know, we really don't know the reasons why. But you know, it, it really kind of. Uh, um, grinds my gears, we hear that people are refusing to respond to people's needs. But, again, we don't know. 
was there six feet of snow? Was I mean, so there's just so many things that we don't know yet. But one of the things that we have to be able to try to do and we have to be able to be diligent about is to ensure that we deliver the highest quality of care to the people that need us on what could be the worst day of their life, wherever it is. And, you know, we, we gave kudos, uh, you know, a month or so back, Kelly, for folks in D.C. when, the, you know, they went, they hoofed it on foot to get to a call because they couldn't get the ambulance through all that snow mm-hmm. they had up there. Yeah. I mean, that's just what you have to do to deliver the highest quality of patient yeah. care. I'm going to, I'm going to keep my comments to myself until I learn a little bit more about it. Cause again, three sides to every story. You've got, uh, you know, somebody's brother who's hurt. Uh, it becomes a very, very emotional time. Um, so we'll kind of see how that plays out. But my next story, probably our last one for the day comes out of Florence, South Carolina. And this was a story that uh, happened on the 10th of uh, March, and a man was charged with DUI after crashing head-on into an ambulance, and uh, paramedic uh, Tessie Oldham-Smith had to be extricated and cut out of the ambulance, and if my memory serves me right, uh, I think one of her legs were amputated, Mm. and uh, you know this was just a very, very horrible accident for her, and the reason I bring it up is there is a GoFundMe page uh, we'll put it in the show notes, it, you know, and one of the things that we think about in EMS is, is we're not in this job because we're banking the dead presidents, that we're going to buy the 80-foot yacht, that we're going to live in a 24-bedroom uh, mansion. You know, some of these folks live paycheck to paycheck. Some of these yeah. folks, you know, have challenges making ends meet. And, and any time that we hear that one of our own is in a position that, you know, that we've got to worry about uh, medical bills, we've got to worry about those types of things. If there's anything that we can do, $1, dollars $2, $5, mm-hmm. $10, that we can help people in our career field, that's something that we just have to do. Yep. You know, and, and you and I talk sometimes about uh, uh, fire department, EMS, and, and, and we're critical of the model. But I'll tell you what, there's something that fire and law enforcement does very well that EMS still has, has to learn. And, and they get the concept of brotherhood. Uh, uh, a f- brother firefighter, a brother law enforcement officer uh, has a problem. Uh, um, the community rallies behind them, and, and EMS simply does not do enough of that. And and if you have the money to spend, um, just every little bit helps. It doesn't matter if it's a dollar or if it's a hundred dollars. Um, go to the GoFundMe page and and kick in um, because, as we all know, if, uh, sometimes uh, the, there's a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of bills left at the end of those benefits payouts. So she's going to be facing some some pretty significant uh, rehab issues. She's going to be out of work for quite some time, and uh, and all insurance uh, runs out eventually. So um, do what you can to help her out, and um, that's about it. You know, you bring up a good point. Let me ask you this question before I, I you go off to closing. That you know, you talked about police, and you talked about fire being a more of a brotherhood, and, and you kind of compared that to EMS uh, of those guys doing it better than we do. Is it because the EMS career field isn't united as one? Even though police departments and fire departments are separate, they're bound by their labor. They're bound by their union. Do we have mm-hmm. that? Do we have that disconnect in our career field because we're so splintered? Yes, I, I, you know, first of all, we, uh, EMS is, is well known for eating its own young, uh, and you've got, you know, AMR versus rural Metro versus Acadian versus, you know, versus paramedics plus, and you got 
public utility model guys against uh, private EMS versus fire versus hospital based volunteer versus paid and and you know to quote that that great philosopher Rodney King yo why can't we just all get along um, we we do need to focus more on the fact that at the end of the day no matter what system we work in no matter what model we work under no matter what level we are uh, we still bear a star of life on one arm and and that means something. And it should mean more than any other division between us. Um, maybe it's just because we are are still a somewhat immature profession uh, compared to to law enforcement and and fire suppression. Uh, and maybe that's a lesson we'll learn with a little bit more professional maturity. Uh, but it needs to happen. In the meantime, we're going to hope for the best for Tessie Odom Smith. And I think I'm going to head over to the GoFundMe page and kick in some money myself. Uh, and we wish her a, a speedy recovery and uh, all the best. But that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. So email us again at the show at ems1.com. And for myself, co-host Chris Sevalero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.